Today we have three of our finest horror writers who are currently touring the West Coast reading ghost stories as the Rolling Darkness Review. We're speaking with authors Dennis Etchison, Glenn Hirschberg, and Peter Atkins. Glenn Hirschberg is the author of the novel The Snowman's Children and the collection of ghost stories The Two Sams. Dennis Etchison's short stories have appeared in numerous magazines and anthologies since 1961 and his collections The Dark Country, Red Dreams, The Blood Kiss, and The Death Artist. He is also an editor, novelist, screenwriter, and winner of six, count them, six British Fantasy and World Fantasy Awards. He's edited the new anthology Gathering the Bones. Pete Atkins is the author of the novels Morning Star, or The Vampires of Summer, and Big Thunder. He wrote Hellbound, Hellraiser 2. He's also half of Hill House Publishing, a small press specializing in lavish editions of speculative fiction. Welcome to the show, gentlemen. Hi, Thank glad you for to having be us. here. What I'd like to start off the conversation is to ask a real basic question about horror fiction and dark fantasy. Why do we enjoy the experience of fictional fear? Glenn, why don't you start things off? Well, the traditional theory, which I don't subscribe to, is that there's catharsis involved, that we face these demons every day in real life, and if you read it in horror fiction, they, they're they on the pages, and you can read it and get scared, and then you can close the book, and it gives this illusion of control over the monsters. And I, my feeling has always been that if the book is any good, the monsters are going to crawl right out of the pages and come after you anyway. So I think, at least for me, it has more to do with that there's a real joy in sort of taking the worst of what's probably coming for all of us in one way or another and just taking it out for a little spin and asking it to dance. And there's also there's a storytelling element in the genre, which I think just speaks to the basic pleasures of all fiction, which is just being told a story and being gripped and held by a world that isn't your own. Dennis Etchison, why don't you tell us what you think? My sense has always been that it's a, a kind of a learned reaction it goes back to when we were very small. I think of the stories that Hitchcock used to tell about being frightened on his father's knee when he was a child, uh, being told boo and then hugged, and how he learned to associate being frightened with pleasure. And I can remember scary carnival rides and a fun house in first grade and things like that that f- were frightening but that I associated with uh, pleasure. And some people never made that association, just as now uh, there are people, as adults, we see people around us who love roller coasters, they love to be terrified, and other friends we have say, I would never go on a roller coaster, I would never go on a scary ride like that. And they would be the people that haven't associated fear with pleasure, I think, in their minds. Pete Atkins, tell us what you think. Um, I would agree, actually, with both of my colleagues here, but I'd also say that I think we are drawn to that fiction not only because it scares us, although the thrill of the scare is absolutely part of it and the and the thrill of a good story is part of it. I also think subconsciously, well, consciously or subconsciously, we're drawn to it because it, it's a kind of, uh, both in fiction and in film, it's a kind of metaphysics for the masses. It, it, it's an opportunity to um, rehearse, in every sense of the word, the issues that our essentially post-religious age doesn't allow us to discuss elsewhere because the the concerns of horror fiction, even the most mundane, are inevitably life and death and the spaces between them. Um, So I think we actually go there, whether we know it or not, for uh, a little brush with with the imminent. Religious services for the atheists of today Mm -hmm. and agnostics. 
Well, I think that's an interesting thought. Well, well I think you, horror makes believers of all of us, don't we? Doesn't it? It's like you, you put an agnostic and an atheist in in a, in a theoretical supernatural situation, and uh, suddenly they're not so uh, agnostic, right? If the devil's chasing you, if a vampire's chasing you, it's hard to say, oh, come now, reason would, reason would forbid the existence of such things. You'd be too busy running. Although the interesting thing about that is, that in a way, if that's true, that both heightens the fear factor. Because if, if, we, if an agnostic or an atheist comes to the horror fiction and it doesn't make a believer out of him, then we're really facing the reality that there's nothing and that this is it. And right. if it does make a believer, then there's a peculiar sort of comfort or pleasure once again in the field. You guys are touring uh, the West Coast with the Rolling Darkness Review. Glenn, tell us how you guys came up with this idea. It's a really fantastic idea. Well, a year ago, I think, uh, in Glendale, California, uh, Dennis and I were part of a sort of carnivalesque Halloween reading at a local used bookstore. And we got to talking then about how much we loved being read ghost stories, how much we enjoyed talking about it. And we started talking about the idea then. I actually had additional conversations with Ramsey Campbell about this at the World Horror Convention. There seemed to be a consensus, at least amongst the writers, that people might like to hear us tell them ghost stories. We'll Peter see Straub if the readers get that. Peter was interested at one point too, right? Yes, he was. Um, and we just couldn't work it out with Peter for this year. But the idea, I think... The whole horror field, most of us came to this in one way or another, metaphorically or otherwise, around a campfire with being told stories. Mm -hmm. And so the idea of being told a ghost story is, is sort of central to the fiction. And so when I called Dennis in June or July of this year and said, well, why don't we actually try this out and see how much interest is there? We got pretty quick response and uh, Pete came in immediately and it's just been it's the planning has actually been very easy people do seem to be interested in the concept so also we're old hams that come from uh right. some theater performing right. and uh <laughs> there's a certain pleasure also teachers yes. uh, for glenn and me we enjoy talking to uh, a captive audience i think right. something of, of the old performer i started as an actor way back when and uh the ham always stays in you and you enjoy holding an audience in the palm of your hand or trying trying to at least Dennis, a man who likes the ham to stay in him. There you go. <laughs> That's, yeah, okay. You can edit that out too, but I couldn't resist it. Well, there's a, a real part of performance in even the writing of many horror stories. There are often the most gripping ones are compelling first-person monologues or tight third-person points of view of one narrative speaker speaking to you. You think of the telltale heart. Could you guys talk a little bit about the importance of the performance, in terms of maybe as you write a, and conceive a horror story. May I speak to that for just a second? Mm -hmm. uh, anytime that I write, I think I've always been conscious of speaking to an audience. It's an invisible audience, but I know it's out there. And my attempt, I think like an actor or a dramatist, is to hold people's attention, to get the audience's attention, to manipulate their uh, their attention, and to direct it in the ways that I that I want. You think of Hitchcock manipulating his audience making them frightened, distracting them, surprising them. I'm very conscious of doing that when I'm writing. I have in my mind a concept of an ideal reader out there, and I'm writing for that ideal reader. But to me, all the arts are, in a sense, performing. I'm, I'm really not making a stretch here. I feel very much that I'm performing, even though I'm working alone in a room. I feel that I'm pr working to an audience. Pete, do you feel that way? Yeah, I, I, very much so. I, I think with writing specifically, whether... 
whether the style is the most sublimely invisible or, or the most rococo ornate, I, I think always that the sense is that it's a one-on-one -on -one relationship between the man and woman who's generating the words and the man and woman who's reading them. And as I say, beneath whatever level of style one operates on, I think there is always that sense of, now let me show you this. Now let me show you this. Here, look around this corner now. Hey, guess what's coming next? Check this out. And that's just as important as the issue of self-expression. Absolutely. Yeah. In, in fact, in terms of playing fair with your audience, uh, it, I, I would say it's almost more important than self-expression. Well, I think of it. So I think we all feel there's far too much self-expression in the modern uh, arts, don't we? I've, I'm, I think about magicians doing their act and how the only thing that matters is the effect that the audience sees. The audience doesn't see the wires being pulled Absolutely. and the secret uh, maneuvers that you're doing. And the only thing that counts is getting the response and, and, and making it effective well, for them. You mentioned teaching, too. Yeah. Uh, Dennis and I have both been teaching a long time. Yeah. And one of the things, teaching has influenced my writing in so many ways. And well, it's one like of the acting ways, on a, in front of an audience. That's exactly right. And the art of teaching well, so much of it is very similar to the art of telling a story well, where you're creating something where there's an interest first in whatever you're teaching. You have to hold There's a attention. drawing them into it, and there's a payoff. And so my stories, right. I think, work very much the same way where you pull someone in, you create a world around them, you make them interested in what's coming around the corner, just as you say, right. and then right. you give them something around the corner. And we both had so. the experience of losing the attention of the yes, classroom at times. <laughs> and I'm very kind. And you, Pete, have a rock band and you perform directly in front of people. Yeah, and, uh, and I and began as an actor, I began in life theater right. as well. So, yeah, the audience and their reaction and the relationship um, both during performance and, and the ongoing relationship before and after, I, I think is very important. And I think particularly, you know, leaving aside whatever posterity may judge in terms of, of, of the literary quality of our work, as, as people who work in popular fields and popular literature, it's vital, I think, that, that you keep that compact with, with your audience one way or another. You, you have to be aware of them at all times. Now, you don't, you don't have to pander to them. You don't have to do necessarily what they want. But I think, you know, you make a deal. And I would even go one step further with that, Pete, and argue that there's a, uh, there's a movement in certain sections of, of the way at least Americans are thinking about popular fiction right now, that the storytelling art, the telling a story, is a little bit like sugar on your cereal. That the story, if, there's, if the um. story is too compelling... You're, that somehow it's not good for you. It's juvenile. Right. And I think none of all of us, we all take ourselves probably fairly seriously in our, in our private moments about what we're trying to do in terms of our work. Sure. But I also think that we take the story very seriously and feel that that is an essential element of good, not only horror fiction, but fiction, period. Art period. Art right? period. I mean, absolutely. The story might be a metaphor in, in a non-narrative form, but it, it's yeah. not the sugar. It's the thing itself. That's right. Yeah. Horror shares a lot, especially in its performance aspect, with humor. And one of the things that both you find encounter both in humor and horror is the punchline. You yeah. can, sometimes Good, you start yeah. with it. Dennis has a story that has an absolutely classic starting punchline. All of you guys have stories that have absolutely knockout finished punchlines. I wonder if you talk about how you build to that in the narrative or how you think about it at that and how a story build does a story build around a punchline or do you discover it as you write it? I had the experience several times over the years of uh, working very hard on short stories, mailing them off, and as soon as I mailed them, realizing that I had left off the final line that I'd been building up to because I knew it so well. 
it was so much a part of me as I was writing the story that I just didn't bother to mention it. So I had to send revised copies of the stories out immediately. Uh, there is usually, well, there are usually several lines or images that, that I'm trying to include that seem like the big ones to me, and I'm trying to find a way to fit them in and eventually move up to that point. Sometimes the story will digress and take its own shape and begin to go somewhere that is actually more interesting, in which case you have to be prepared to drop your preconception and let it go. In other words, I'm thinking of something that the science fiction writer Alfred Bester said years ago. He said the book is king, meaning that whatever is good for the work is what you should do, and it doesn't matter whether it was your original idea or whether it's your editor's idea or where the idea comes from. The final goal is to make the story or the book as good as, as you can possibly make it. And that's really all that counts. Talking about magicians before, the audience doesn't know nor will ever know what you're going through backstage to prepare for this illusion. They, the, and the fact that I'm, I may be achieving some epiphany in self-understanding or some self-expression that's significant to me, there's no reason why the audience should care about that. They don't know me as a, as a human being, as an individual. The only thing that counts is the effect that it has on them. So you do whatever is required to to try to provide the audience with the satisfaction they need. There was a, uh, there are a couple things in what you said. First of all, both of you have made reference to magicians, which I think definitely, magic definitely has something to do with our field in a way. And you asked about how it's done or in the craft of the story. And I think it's, it's really often as simple as the basic fundamental magician's trick of watch this hand. Misdirection. Right. right. That's all it's about. But I also think that there's a danger with the punchline, the punchline school of horror fiction, which oh, uh, sure. is it just that it becomes, you don't want the punchline. If the punchline drives the story, then it's a gimmick. And then it becomes not a story in a way, it becomes a joke. And so while horror and humor are related, I ultimately think that in the end, their fundamental impact is different. Dennis was talking about the way punchlines evolve. I think that's the way they have to happen, at least for me, if they're going to work in a good story, my story, I have a story called Mr. Dark's Carnival in which, which I was telling to my students for seven years before I wrote it down. And it had a completely different ending. Uh, mm. it, it, I was told, I told it as if it had happened to me, as if it were completely true. And it ended with my wife going insane. And when I wrote it down. And after the lawsuit. <laughs> yeah, that's right. <laughs> when I wrote it down, 10 pages from the end, I discovered the written ending. And my students to this day are incredibly annoyed with me about that. And most of them felt that my wife was insane. And one of them, when I appeared at a school play once with her, actually approached me after the play and asked, she's all right now, right? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, art is, art is artifice, you art know, is artifice. Uh, uh, by but nature. I'd like to talk a little more about the, the connection between humor and horror because I think it's not only the punchline. I think everything the guy said is absolutely right. Um, and often, I think we'd probably all admit you, you, a story is constructed by a process of reverse engineering. And I'm not necessarily talking about the, the literal five-word punchline, but you very often have the ending first. And then you think, well, how can, I, how can I pretend to make this interesting for the 10 pages necessary before I can deliver this fabulous punch ending? But I think human horror related also because they're both about heightened sensations and they're both about telling truths in an arena or they're both about uh, creating an arena in which truths can be told that we don't necessarily like to talk about in plight company and I think that that's actually the, the root connection between humor and horror it's a place where you can say oh yeah that's true isn't it 
It's a, and you can either laugh or share. I guess pornography would be the, the third genre <laughs> in which you're in heightened, sensa- uh, heightened <laughs> sensations and talking about stuff you don't normally talk about. But. And you know how irritating it is when some writers seem to be absolutely humorless? And oh, you, yeah. it creates a tension in you where you want to burst out laughing or make a wisecrack right. as you're reading it. It's as if they have no detachment or objectivity about what they're doing. Right. And they become so somber and so pretentious about tiny banal details. And you just want to say, oh, come on, man, relax yeah. for a second. <laughs> yeah. The instant mystery science theater 3000 effect. Yeah, right. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> One thing you just brought up, Pete, which is a very important part of uh, the genre, is the process of, of externalizing and examining our fears. That's one of the things I always found most interesting about horror is that it really allows us to talk about, as you say, those things that we really just would prefer. It's not some kind of thing you're going to have a polite conversation about. But you're working from personal fears usually, aren't you, when you write something frightening? Um, I, I, I never assume something will frighten anybody else un- unless it also frightens me. Mm-hmm. Um, I've only – the only specific uh, where it, it – it, ran the, the, the whole piece was I wrote a short story called Aviatrix um, and I did used to have a fear of flying and and the story's about fear of flying and, and it doesn't end well folks but um, <laughs> but the interesting thing is and, and believe me I, I'm 100% with Glenn in the theory of rejecting catharsis as uh, as why we go to this stuff but I have to say hand on heart having written the story and this not being the intent uh, I lost my fear of flying, having got it down on paper. Mm. So I, I don't know. I, well, I lost track useful, of what that's the question the, was. I'm sorry. The useful practical aspect of writing for you, which doesn't necessarily have to concern your readers, but as a right as part of this interview, you can reveal that that it was personally valuable to you. Yeah, though absolutely not the intent nor the expected outcome. I was thinking Um, about how you've had this experience. I'm sure where it seems sometimes that the nicest people that you know are horror writers. Much nicer as a group than, than, than comedy writers, because we get that crap out. Yeah, but that's the comedy right. writers that's right. let it fester. You don't want to hang out with comedy writers. <laughs> Mystery you, you writers want... tend to be rather uh, bitter and cynical. Right. Science fiction writers tend to be rather dry. They think they're very humorous, but they're really humorless. They do a lot of puns and things like that. Oh yeah, the grown-ups. Uh, but uh, horror writers, as a group, and we're, we, we're just the best all around. Well, when we go to these really. conventions, well, you must admit, when you think of Robert Block and so many people that we've known over the years, witty, intelligent, they were jokey, and damn good-looking. <laughs> yeah, well. That's the effect of radio. Yeah. Yeah. So, so it, I, I think that has to do with getting it out, uh, not denying the dark part of yourself and dealing with it when you're writing. And then when you're finished writing, you feel very good because you've been looking at the dark stuff all day, so it's time to lighten up a little bit. Tend, you know, to, tend to be good-natured. Yeah. There was an interesting part of what Pete said that works a little bit differently for me, but it's the same basic concept, which is, I guess for me, and this may just be my own, the perverse element in my personality, whatever it is, but the the monsters, the ghosts, the whatever the, the horrible creature is, for me... I usually am very interested in that character. That isn't what scares me. So those are out there to sort of mask the more sort of fundamental psychological fears that I hope I'm writing about in the story and that I am absolutely getting out on paper and getting rid of. And I haven't experienced the catharsis where uh, horror has made me, say, lose my, I don't know if it's fear, but general annoyance about dying. 
Um, <laughs> but it has certainly allowed me to go through my days much more happily. And so, like Dennis says, it's it's a it's a relaxing thing in a way. Not trying to one up you, but I have pondered in the last few months. The the question occurred to me is is death in our fiction a metaphor for something? Is death a metaphor for something else? Because it seems to be the one irreducible thing. Mm-hmm. But well, maybe we speak of death when we're really speaking about something well, else. Well, I'm holding out the hope that death is a metaphor in life, not in fiction. <laughs> you know, there but... you go. I think there are going to be some fascinating medical developments in the next few years. I hope they get here in time. <laughs> Better be quick. We're speaking with horror and dark fantasy authors Dennis Etchison, Glenn Hirschberg, and Peter Atkins. Gentlemen, I wanted to talk to you about short fiction versus novels. Horror is one of the real places where short fiction shines, and it still shines today. It still sells today. Could you talk about that? Well, <laughs> maybe not. Well, well it sells. <laughs> doesn't sell well. <laughs> Could you talk about the difference for you between writing a short story and writing a novel? And does one grow from the other ever, or... How does it happen? Glenn. De- Dennis and I have had several discussions about this, actually, because I think, and I think we've agreed rightly that Dennis is a born short story writer, and I am much more of a natural novelist. Most of my short stories, both the novel that I published, The Snowman's Children, and the one I've just finished, were originally short stories that just kept mushrooming, and I just couldn't get a handle on them. And most of my stories are, are quite long. Um, so I do think that there's a rhythm that is in your writing, first of all, that leads you naturally towards one end of the field or the other. But addressing the other part of your question, which is horror fiction, I do think that horror fiction is extremely well suited to the short story and the novella. And I think the number of horror novels that actually can sustain the sort of atmosphere, the sort of misdirection, all those things that go into an effective horror story well for the length of time to, to make a fully developed novel work I think there's a relatively small pool of really terrific horror novels, and I think there are a number of wonderful horror short stories and horror novellas. And I think that that just has to do with the essential fundamentals of the craft. I I believe that they're entirely different forms. They work exactly the opposite. They require a different mindset entirely. Uh, There are a few writers who can do both. Uh, well, Ramsey Campbell comes to mind. And then there are other novelists in the field, like Peter Straub, who has written very, very little short fiction and doesn't feel inclined to do so. So he's the natural novelist, I think. I'm remembering what Philip K. Dick said uh, years ago, that in a short story, the characters and the story are in service of the idea. And in a novel, the story, the plot, is in service of the characters. In a long work, what happens is essentially following the footprints of the characters in the snow and writing down where they went and what they did uh, as they went in search of their fate. Whereas in a short story, the characters are created to illustrate the idea and to act out the meaning of the idea. It's two entirely different uh, ways of looking at things. And for whatever reasons, I'm much more in the short story mindset. What about yourself, Pete? Um, I, I again, I agree with both of my colleagues on what the, um, I have um, not necessarily done either form well, but I've certainly done both forms. I, I, I agree they're different. I, I think the odd, odd and interesting and exciting thing that happens with novels is uh, that all of the platitudinous crap that you hear other writers talk about that you assume is just nonsense turns out to be true. And at the risk of sounding like uh, 
a mouthpiece for that platitudinous crap myself. It is true that when you write a novel, you will find the story itself and the characters taking you to places that you had no conscious uh, intent or knowledge you were going to go to. Especially the characters, at least in my experience. Yeah, right. Sorry, Dennis is completely right, I think, sure. the way that works. And, uh, and I remember w- with much surprise, genuinely, but, you know, uh, usually, if, if you're lucky, you can tell. You get the germ of an idea, and you sort of know pretty much immediately whether this is going to be, whether this will sustain 3,000 words or 90,000 words. Um, so usually you're lucky, and, and, and you start out the right way. I mean, occasionally we've all had the experience where it's like, oh, I was hoping this was going to be a novel, but I guess that's it. <laughs> uh, or vice versa. It's like, hey, I might have a novel here. But I do remember the experience partway through the writing of my first novel, Morningstar, where an entire section, I mean, not not just one incident, uh, an entire sustained section, you know, it didn't write itself. I I did have to break a sweat on parts of it. But I I didn't know, I I guess that, in fact, is the cliche, which I will now regurgitate for, for the next generation. When I woke up that morning, I didn't know that section was coming, and two days later when that section was finished, I was su- as surprised by it as, as I hope other readers would be. And I did a novel years ago called Shadow Man, and all the way through that book, for nine months that it took to write it, I, I was planning on building toward a certain ending that would reveal the murderer. Mm-hmm. And when I got close to that part in the writing, I realized that that wasn't the person who had done it. So I had to discover that there was a different murderer and a different reason than I had thought all that time. So novels do have a way of going in their own on their own route that you didn't plan on. A short story, on the other hand, also has that experience where well, it will surprise I gonna, you. I was going to say we, do, we it, don't want to make it no, sound no. like the short story is the inferior. It also form surprises in any way. you. Yeah. Oh, I would I would argue. Well, I know you. Uh, would. I would argue being a short story well, writer. Yes. I would argue <laughs> the opposite that it's the. The, the shorter is the more difficult uh, form to do well, not to do badly, but to do well. And then the shorter form... That might be true. The shorter form still is poetry, which is the most difficult writing of all, mm-hmm. where absolutely every, every syllable counts. Every sure. syllable. But anyway, the act of surprise is something that we've all experienced, right? Yeah. One of the primary mainstays of horror these days is, of course, horror movies. And, and I know Pete and Dennis, you've been in, involved in them. I would be surprised if... Glenn stuff isn't optioned. Uh, keep, keep talking. <laughs> keep let him let him know. <laughs> let him it's available. Yeah. I wonder if you guys could talk about the effect of horror movies on the fiction, and also to talk about the effect of just talking about horror movies themselves. I, I, they generate a certain buzz in that. Oh my god, that movie is so scary. People are passing out. They're throwing up. Here's mm-hmm. the barf bag. Mm-hmm. And it will generate a certain kind of urban legend and a, a fear around the work of fiction itself. Dennis, you go first. Or? Go right ahead, Dennis. Tell. Well, I'm 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 just thinking. It, I see a, a negative effect on a lot of horror fiction in the last twenty years. It, uh, a lot of people seem to be coming into the field as writers or would be writers who were influenced primarily by B movies, by bad uh, horror movies that are not very intelligent, and they seem to be trying to do the same sort of thing in their fiction. And I'm, it just seems silly to me. It seems a waste of time. Part of the problem is there's so few really fine horror films. They're few and far between. And uh, when you say horror movies to most people, they think of the most extreme and, and graphic B-movies. That Those tend not to be my influences. I'm sure. fond of those pictures. They're, some of them are great fun. But they tend not to be the works that influence me. 
Right. I mean, it depends to whom you're talking, obviously. If you say horror movies to people who have no particular interest in horror movies or probably horror literature, mm -hmm. they will think of the worst examples of the genre. I mean, horror is certainly a genre both in fiction and film that it tends to be judged by the general public by its worst examples, yes. not its right. best. Uh, right. Perhaps that's uh, unique to the horror field. It just seems to me that this is the one field that's judged by its worst examples. I'm so right. sorry to see yeah, that. Yeah, people don't say, I hate westerns because... I saw a really bad one. Right. No, no, no. <laughs> they remember Shane or they yeah, remember right. the Wild Bunch. Right, yeah. exactly. But if you say exactly. horror, they're going to think of the most extreme, ludicrous they thing think that they've Friday ever the 13th. seen. Right. Yeah, yeah. I, uh, but the interesting thing is, at least for me, all the horror writers I know would say that they were heavily influenced by and are huge fans of horror films. And there have also been, uh, when I was, uh, you know, 70s, 80s, during my childhood, horror films were largely atrocious they're getting better like the last few years there have been there have been several horror films worth seeing or at least worth worth arguing about you you wherever you stand on blair witch it was an interesting horror film the japanese the, the you know uh, thailand korea japan mm -hmm. there's a huge sort of outbreak of straight ghost stories there's a thai film called the eye from a couple of years ago that I actually thought was, was had a couple of really terrific images in it and some great ideas. And so all of us, when, when we talk about, say, Val Luton and films from the 40s, like uh, I Walked with a Zombie and Curse of the Cat People, I mean, for me, if you were going to ask what fundamental influences were, those are huge influences. And when I talked to Ramsey Campbell, he would say the same thing and mention three other films. So all of us have this sort of love-hate relationship, I think, with horror films in general. Sure. I, but the thing is, I, I would actually just pick, not, not disagreeing, but picking up on what Glenn said. I think the fact is that in every decade, there were always yeah. a, a fair percentage of interesting sure, or indeed right. excellent horror movies made and a fair percentage of absolute crap. And it, it's certainly, it, it's good to recognize that there are good things out there. Now, it's certainly easier to look back, you know, I mean, my, my two favorite horror movies are King Kong and Bride of Frankenstein. And what... So you would think, oh, yeah, but look, in 1933 and 1935, they were making movies like that. Yeah, but they were making 500 movies that year, and they're the ones we remember. And, you know, that that's probably always been true. I'd also, you know, as somebody who essentially makes his living from that side uh, more than makes a living from the book side, I'd like to just counter Dennis's thing a little by saying 99% of horror fiction is also crap. Yes, uh, you know, true. so let's not forget that. <laughs> in fact, I think a little we were falling in, in, into the trap we just accused other people of. Um, of course, 19. Well, it's Sturgeon's Law. Yeah, you know, yeah. 99 percent of right. horror movies are crap, and they always have been. Mm -hmm. 99 percent of horror fiction is crap. I also don't think necessarily that the influence of horror movies on on, on newcomer on entry-level uh, prose fiction writers is, is always and automatically a bad thing. I have to admit, I had, I'd, sold, uh, I'd sold one short story uh, prior to working in movies. It hadn't actually been published, but I had made the sale. Um, but, you know, and, and all the jokes about working with dumb executives and, and working with idiot directors and all, all that stuff, like, like all generalizations, there's a lot of truth in them, but... Um, Despite the bad habits uh, screenplay writing or working in film can teach you, I have to say that working in that form certainly taught me values as well, values, I would say, of precision, clarity, and economy. And I think they are very valid 
lessons to take to any form of writing. And, and I think certainly my prose writing benefit, in my experience, benefited from those particular lessons. And, and there are several authors of fat, bloated novels who, who I would wish to, to, to impart that lesson to, um, you know. But then again, it, it, it's all, it also teaches you to cut to the chase perhaps a little quickly and uh, rely on the door opening and a monster walking in if you're stuck for, to do anything else. But, you know. I wanted to talk about the emotional content of fiction and your fiction. Glenn, I, with your work, it, emotions are really the primal factor, and it is with, with most great fiction. One of the things that horror fiction can do is we can be afraid of our own emotions, afraid of the depths of feelings that we can fall into, scared of how mad we can become or or frightened at how sad, how much loss we can experience. Could you talk about the experience of emotional pain in horror fiction? I, uh, I think, for me, I mean, you've hit on the thing that I guess is most important to me or most interesting about writing in general, which is just the intensity of people's interactions with each other, and the, um, which we don't often admit. You know, we sort of float through days, and the sort of corny things. I mean, we all listen to love songs, and we do you know, all these things, but we don't often admit to ourselves that that really is the way we feel about other people. We, no, I really do hate this person right here. <laughs> Given the choice, I really would end this person's existence or at re- the very least remove them from mine. And so to me, all of these, I don't want to say that all horror fiction is metaphor because I don't think good horror fiction does operate solely on the level of metaphor. But I think that the opportunity that when you are, sur- I guess I'm most interested in horror, horror, fear is a primary color emotion. And it's a hugely powerful one. It's also boring by itself for that reason. To me, and if you mix it with these other things, you mix horror up with friendships falling apart, with someone losing faith in their ability to function properly in the world, with losing a child, with uh, those sort of intense experiences of living, good or bad, then you get these amazing new colors that come out. And I guess that's what I'm most interested in attempting to do in my fiction. No, I, I would say that there are a couple of kinds of fiction. There's the light entertainment, the anecdotal piece of work that's just really to amuse or to get off a good joke. And then there is that which comes out of a more serious place. And some of my stuff has been anecdotal or just for amusement, but I, probably the majority of it comes from the most serious issues that are going on inside of me at the moment and their attempt to explore them and work them out. Discovery is a big part of the writing process for me. Here again, as I said before, I don't think that necessarily is something that the reader should know about or care about. But since you're talking to the writers here, that's I have to tell you the truth. Many of the stories in these books come out of really the most serious things that I was going through at that time. And they're an attempt to try to deal with them. And that would be true of any of the arts, wouldn't it? That in, in some cases you're simply amusing yourself and doing sure. an entertainment. And in other cases you are very emotional about what you're doing and you're trying to understand a relationship or a feeling sure. or a life crisis that you're going through and you work it out with people in a story. I don't like to use the term characters. I think of them as people when I write. The people and you let them try different ways of working it out and you learn in the course of writing the story more about that in yourself than you knew when you started. Absolutely, I'd, I, I would agree. I, I think you, you learn, hopefully, you learn more about the human heart 
and all its complexities, not, not just necessarily the emotional pain, I would say. I think certainly if you don't write from emotion, you're going to be at best professional and, and proficient, you know, which, which is a good thing to have to fall back on. But you shouldn't also write, it's a bugbear of mine, you shouldn't write naked emotion. I mean, you know, the, the romantic poets, I forget what it was, Wordsworth or Coleridge, I think Wordsworth said, it's overwhelming emotion recollected in tranquility. You have to bring what one's intellect and analytic abilities to bear on the emotional punch. But the emotional punch should be, I, I guess, the... Uh, the recollection in tranquility should be the delivery system by which the emotional punch can be delivered. Th though I would also, I, I want to, with no disrespect to the question or, or the previous answers, I do want to again stress that in my father's house are many mansions and that the range of emotions in the fiction when it's good is not merely the painful or sad ones. It can also be about redemption, reconciliation. <laughs> and also if you look back to a period that featured some of in my opinion, the greatest writing in the field, and now Glenn shares the opinion, if you look at Arthur Macken or Algernon Blackwood, um, the, the, the meta-emotions almost that they try to inculcate in, in the reader is awe rather than fear. And awe it can be terrifying but can also be wonderful. And it's that actual bizarre interplay of terror and wonder in the macrocosm which can be reflected in the microcosm of the people or the characters as both warm feelings, friendships, love, and loss, and anger, and hate, and all those things. So I, I just want to stress that it, it, it's a wide canvas. It, it's, it's not a limiting thing. And just to build on that, Pete, I, th I mean, I completely agree with that and feel like in the field generally defined as horror right now, um, there's an explosion of that kind of work out there. There are a number of terrific writers, and Kelly Link just popped into my head. Mm -hmm. He's a writer who you can't, when you read something that's billed as horror right now, you can't necessarily expect, you shouldn't necessarily expect that what you're going to get is something grim, depressing, terrifying. You will hopefully experience some of that intensity, but the ultimate feeling expressed it might be something quite different. And even the terror, and this does get back to your question in a little bit, won't, doesn't come necessarily from what you expect or maybe even from what right, the writer intended. Right, I remember a story right. of Dennis's. Is this the Dark Country, Dennis? I know that it's in that anthology, the the um, couple driving from California into Arizona. Uh, it only is comes it, out at night. It only comes out at night. Where That's a story I've I probably first read that story when I was 11 years old. And what I've carried with me all these years is not the grim ending, not, I don't, to be honest... This is this is a comment on how good the story is, not how bad, not the ending. I don't remember. I know it ends badly. I don't remember the monster at the end, or I think you don't even see it exactly. But what I do remember, and what has come back to me all my life, is the rhythm of the marriage while driving mm -hmm. at night. Mm -hmm. And I don't remember that the couple even speaks, or if they do, it's very rare. But that sort of sense of knowing someone coming to sort of agreements about what you do and don't like about the other person. Having settled that, yes, I'm going to spend my life with this person and being aware of both the joys and the, in that story, the sacrifices of that, I've carried that with me all my life. And it, I remember, I mean, I think about that story a lot for whatever reason. Now, I, I'm happily married and like my marriage, it's, but it's just the realities of the rhythm of marriage are what I remember from that story. So it's a very different effect than one might hmm. expect. I would think that people who don't read in this field have a much narrower view of what it is 
than what it actually is. I began publishing in science fiction magazines and in some literary and mainstream magazines. And when the boom in horror started in the wake of uh, Stephen King, a lot of us found ourselves publishing in that field, which underwent a boom for 15 years, maybe. And it became a broad, eclectic place where offbeat fiction that didn't quite fit anywhere else could end up. And that was sort of the position that science fiction had been in the 50s and 60s. And then science fiction began to go retrograde and become more conservative in its approach, Mm. I thought. And the horror field seemed to be the repository for the individualistic, peculiar piece of work that didn't exactly fit any other category. So I would just say that for those who haven't read in this field, I think you'll be surprised to find that it's the hardest genre to define. And in fact, it's, it's a great safe harbor for peculiar individualistic artists. All sorts of things that aren't quite horror, aren't quite mainstream, aren't quite anything that you can define will end up published under that horror imprint. I don't think of myself particularly as a horror writer. Nor do I. I don't know about the rest of you. I just think of myself as a writer who's sitting down to try to come up with the best story he can think of at that moment. But I don't think to myself, I'm going to write a horror story. That, that's not my main... That's, that's, I completely agree okay. with that. That's one of the things that I've always liked about horror is the versatility of it. It's eclectic it, and well, wide-ranging as a field. There's a whole bunch of novels and stories out there that had they been written by South Americans rather than North Americans, mm-hmm, they right. would have been called magic realism. Magic realism, and, right. And a few people might have won Pulitzer's or Nobels. Right. You know, it's, magic realism lives in within the parameters of, of this fiction. Though... Again, I don't want the people out there to... I would point out that when we're doing this tour, which we're enjoying very much, Mm -hmm. um, we light candles and put them in pumpkin holders. We have dry ice machines. (laughs) In other words, let's not get too pretentious about this. Part of the root appeal of this stuff is the same as it's always been, which, which is... Pumpkin-headed monsters coming out of the night and, and that's all fun. Not, not only and would I acknowledge that, right. I would glory in it. Absolutely, that's yeah. great. The, the that's only great thing fun. I would say, Pete, though, is that I don't think that is limited to to the horror field. I feel like that that's all good storytelling. It should have that element oh, of the candle. Oh, sure, the candle sure. So, no, I, I just mean in, yes, in response to the course. we don't want to wear you know the yellow star of of horror. We don't want to be in the ghetto. <laughs> no, I don't well, mind. I'm, uh, I'm proud. I'm proud to be. With, you, right. with you in the pumpkin light. It's just exactly. that, it's just that the field is mu- contains much more than non-readers of the field Ab- would realize. Absolutely. Oh, absolutely. And I'd, I'm not apologizing for the field. On the contrary, I'm saying there's, there's a lot more rich material there than you know about. I it. hope sure. we're celebrating it. I Abs- hope we're celebrating oh, no, no, no. The absolutely. Oh, yeah. You are, guys. And, and don't get me wrong. I guess all I'm saying is I, too, probably don't consciously think of myself as a, as a horror writer, though I must admit it is without doubt it, it's Pavlovian. It is the way in which my imagination turns it it's not just oh here is a a predefined marketing category into which i can shoehorn Mm-mm. my ideas my imagination for good or ill naturally flowers in that field and and you know mm-hmm. i'll take the label I, I don't really care either way i don't really have a choice the know? problem is that there are some uh, there are a good many very intelligent readers and critics out there who won't go to it when they I see agree. a book that right. has then it's a problem if they right. see a book sure. that has the category word horror on the spine right. they will say perfectly well, it, seriously oh i never read that sort of thing right and you say to them but this book you should right. read this guy's book right. it's really this is fine literature and they're not convinced. They say, I'm, I don't read that sort of thing. Right. So in a sense, the label can be 
limiting in terms of who your potential I, I readers agree. are. That, this is that a fact. I agree with. Yeah. Sure. I, I myself would just as soon dis- dispense with all genre category names and just call them fiction. Just call them books. Well, it's books, though, convenience. I mean, the genre category names did not exist before the 1930s. It was both the explosion of fiction magazines, the pulp magazines, and... Um, and and the growing literacy and and bookstores all over the place and in pragmatic terms you can understand the booksellers desire to shelve things easily so that the customers and when there was a horror them, boom going on that was a good thing to be a part of this well, burgeoning sure. field sure. now that most mass market publishers have cancelled their horror lines book lines and now it's a bad it's thing. now a disadvantage but, to be known as a horror but writer. for the writers themselves prior to the I would guess about the 1930s I'm not being scientific about this prior to that it was never an issue for writers. Robert, right. Lu- Robert Louis Stevenson didn't have to think, uh-oh, I, I, now there's a danger I'll be labeled a horror writer because of Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde, whereas I was perfectly happy being a, mm. a boy's adventure writer. Having, mm. I mean, he just wrote the books yeah. that his imagination compelled him to write. Dickens wrote ghost stories and did not, as far as I know, differentiate them from the rest of his output. And, and most writers, I think, still work that way. Sure. Honestly, I mean, it's, it's a... It's a critical phenomenon, maybe a product of the sort of genrefication mm-hmm. of literature in general. But the idea that say you take a writer like Jonathan Carroll, say, right. who, fine writer, his books were always a complex mash They're very of peculiar and, and very the beautiful. Idea, right? The idea that he was somehow escaping or transcending genre in his later fiction, I know very few writers of quality who work that way. You tell the stories that are in front of you and you turn them into your editors and you hope that there's a story there. And so I, and then you, you leave it to readers and you hope that readers are open-minded enough to figure it out. And one of the things I've found, we were talking about this before, one of the things that I found so rewarding about coming up in the horror field is that horror readers, within, outside the genre, you're right, you slap a label on it mm-hmm. and people are afraid of it, some, people, some readers. But within the genre, I found the general readership of horror fiction incredibly expansive and open-minded in their tastes and willing to take on anything that vaguely fit a notion of what horror might be. And I have horror stories and novelettes by writers such as Joyce Carol Oates in my anthologies. And do you realize that Joyce has published several books that are in that genre? But that's not all she publishes. It's just one of her many interests. And she's as legitimate a writer as I can think of in this country at the moment. So enough uh, apology. But I just wanted to say, all you guys out there, don't be put off by something if it says horror. Take a look at the first few lines and see what you think. It may surprise you. Could you guys talk about the role of the small press for you and how that fits into the genre and just brings more fiction to readers who just want to read something that's worth reading. I think small presses have always been, well, always, for at least 60 or 70 years have been important to the propagation and promulgation of of genre fiction. You know, having spent the last 20 minutes dissing the fact that there is such a thing as genre fiction, given that there is, the small press going back as far as Arkham House, obviously, uh, who were the first people to put H.P. Lovecraft in in hardcover, at least as a standalone author, and and right through, I think, have been very important. I, I think there's a difference between a small press and and the collectible press, I, I think they perhaps might appeal to different people. I think the collectible press appeals to people who want a really fabulous high-end Cadillac edition of their favorite guy. But, and, 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 and Hill House, actually, you're very kind, but I, I'm not really at the helm of it. Peter Schneider mm-hmm. um, 
would kill me. Uh, Peter Schneider is at the helm of Hill House. And, and I think we're in the business of making pricey Cadillacs for those people who want them because we're both just book whores. Uh, you know, not just the content, but books as object. I belong to that subcategory where... Oh, I'm love, there too. Right. But books as objects are very, very important to me. But I, I think in terms of serving the genre, I, I have to say uh, the small press performs a, a separate and vitally important function, which is to get quality writers, quality difficult perhaps writers into print when mainstream presses might be reluctant to do that. And and I think that that's I'm happy to talk about Hill House, but but I think the real function of of the small press is that. I think the downside of that is that uh, you can also get a lot of uninteresting, uh, difficult writers into print. But, uh, you know, time is the great leveler. I had been trying to sell a collection of my short stories for 13 years when Jeff Connor from Santa Cruz showed up at a convention and said, I'm thinking of starting up a small press and I'd like to publish a collection of your stories. I found that amazing and phenomenal. And he published a book called The Dark Country as the first of the screen press books. And fortunately, it got some very good reviews in, in Publishers Weekly, Library Journal, and within six months, he had gone through about four printings. The paperback rights sold, foreign rights sold, and it was extremely important. I had not been able to sell that collection for 13 years, and it was because a small press publisher came to mm-hmm. me, and uh, it was hugely significant for me to get that collection of stories out. And others followed, but they wouldn't have followed, and the attention, critical attention wouldn't have been there if the book had never been published in the first place. So small presses, particularly in this field, perform a absolutely crucial function. I had uh, two uh, thoughts about this. One, similarly to Dennis, the story that really kicked off this segment of my career was I had written Mr. Dark's Carnival, which came out 68 pages long, and you know, TypeScript, which is absolutely useless. What like, are you going to do, do, do with that? Yeah. <laughs> and uh, the only people I could think of to send it to, and I wasn't even submitting it to them, I had written some reviews for the magazine All Hallows, which is the uh, magazine of the Ghost Story Society, run by Barbara and Christopher Roden at Ashtree Press in British Columbia, who put out some beautiful books, very similar to what Pete describes. They're Cadillac books. You oh, know, absolutely. The... Uh, M.R. James collection is right. a pleasing terror. Stunning. Oh, yeah. Essential collection. So they, uh, I sent it to them, and they emailed back three hours later, and you know, they're very low-key, and just wrote back and said, we'll take it. And I didn't even know what that meant. And that came out in an anthology of theirs, and uh, similar, it got some attention, and that really sort of helped me get going. But the other thing I wanted to say is they serve a two-pronged purpose, the small presses for the field. The first is exactly what Pete and Dennis have already talked about, what all of us have benefited from, that is just being able to get the work out there. The second is an archival purpose. It makes people like Mackin, people that we may have heard about but you know, growing up, but you have very little access to, especially if you don't have hundreds of dollars to you know go on book exchange and, and snap up the used firsts that are out there. It makes, the, it makes the work of the great people in our field that have really sort of fallen into oblivion not quite so forgotten anymore. And I've discovered a lot of my favorite literature that way. 
No, that, that's a very important function. I'd, I'd also say something pragmatic and I think ultimately hopeful for, for the future of writing and publishing. I, I met Pete Schneider, by the way, with whom I work in Hill House, when we both worked very briefly for a well-intentioned but doomed venture called Stealth Press. And prior to that, I knew, despite having been a published author for 10 years and, and working in film as well, I knew very little about the financial realities and of, of publishing. And when the mega corporations, which are really all the, the mainstream publishers are now, that when they say, we can't take a risk on this book, it might only sell 10,000 copies, they're not lying. It's actually true because of, of what we might call the ridiculous size of, of their staffing and overheads. They cannot make a profit on a book at 10,000. They're actually not being unfair to us, per se, when they say... It's not profitable. We want either beginners or bestsellers, and that's about it. What's interesting is that a small press with very few relative overheads can make a great deal of profit on 10,000 books. In fact, they can be profitable on 3,000. I'm talking about sales of units, obviously, not titles in their catalog. If they sell 3,000 copies of a title, unless they've been very silly, they, they will not make a loss on that book. And what I think is very exciting is right now we're still calling them small presses, collector's presses, private presses. They're not. They're really what all publishers were 80 years ago. When every publishing company in England and America bore somebody's name, the reason it bore somebody's name is because Jonathan Cape, lunatic that he was, thought it would be fun to publish these books. Alfred Knopf thought it would be fun to publish these books. Chapman and Hall thought it would be fun to publish these books. And I I am optimistically of the belief that Cemetery... Now, obviously, we, we know more about the small press publishers in our particular field. I'm hoping this is true across the board. But when Cemetery Dance sell 3,000 copies of, of a hardcover novel, that's comparable to what an acceptable hardcover sale was many years ago when publishing companies were small. And I think what's going to happen is that these houses, they're, they're just printing houses, they're publishing houses, they're going to emerge to, f nature abhors a vacuum, and they are going to emerge to fill the gap that these megalithic corporations cannot serve and, you know, more power to them. And I, I think I think that's a good thing. I, I think it will save the mid-list, which makes the right, which makes most writers I know happy. I got a couple of bestseller friends. They don't give a crap. <laughs> but, but most of us will be delighted if it serves the mid-list. And I think ultimately it serves the, the reader as well because a variety of... I babbled on for so long, guys. I'm sorry. <laughs> Come in. Well, Come almost in. all writers are known at publishing companies as mid-list writers. There are a few at the top that are their bestsellers. And everybody else that they publish is known as a mid-list writer. Right. And alas, I am a mid-list writer, but I'm in good company. Yeah, except yeah, right. that what, <laughs> what Pete is so right about is that the mid-list writer has ceased to be part of the company. That's they right. Are a right. They are, there's a purge being squeezed of mid-list right. writers. And so when you have presses like Cemetery Nightshade Press is right. another one, that, and so they are very right. actively saying we are, I mean, they're collectible in a sense, but they are very actively not pricing their books. Right. So where well, we're not talking about right. yeah. $25 instead of 50 and they are seeking to become a mid-list press. Golden Griffin is another example. Yeah, there you right. go. And so maybe Pete, boy, you know, there was a more optimistic spin on the state of the publishing industry that I've heard, but convincing. So I, I hope well, you know right. what? I'd, I'd make the. I know this is important to Glenn because we're both musicians. Um, I, I'd make the analogy just with the way 
people are seizing control of the music industry in, in the face again of, of the corporatization of the record labels. And you see that analogy that yeah, if you can if you can get the stuff out there in perfectly acceptable packages, the guy on the street, the ultimate consumer, doesn't give. A phrase I can't use. I'm sorry. The ultimate consumer does not care whether it is produced by Hamish Hamilton or Cemetery Dance or RCA or BlendsRecords.com. You know, whatever. Um, the, the only, the only exception, or the only negative I see in all of this, and I agree with you completely. And that music is a perfect analogy for it. The independent music right. scene is a thriving thing right now. There, because so many people have access to the technology to actually put their stuff out. I, mean, I think to press, it's the same thing. The only thing is the idea, and maybe this is good for art, but the idea that artists had for a little while in the middle of the century that we would be, a large group of us might actually be able to make a living from our art. Oh, uh, I think that might be very less few, true in right, this model. I think yes. in this model, the people who write, and again, maybe this is good for art, but the people who write will write for the love of it because the likelihood of making, of carving out a living right. becomes even less with the elimination of the mid-list at the major. You, no one is going to make a living writing for, at this point, Cemetery Dance, Nightshade, Golden Griffin. Unle unless they can get... write damn fast. That's right. Yeah. <laughs> so buy our books. <laughs> We've been speaking with Dennis Etchison, Glenn Hirschberg, and Peter Atkins. Thank you very much, gentlemen. Thank, Thank you for you. having us. Pleasure.